Tonight I'd like to explore some energies that come up in our practice, some mental energies, some mind states that come up in our practice that we can get caught in and that we can struggle with. The Buddha in particular identified five particular energies that are challenging for us. And he, um, in his usual way he of creating lists. He gave this list a name and it is called the, the hindrances. So these are five mental energies and they are sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. So I'll I'll talk about these this evening. The Buddha called them hindrances because they tend to hinder our ability to settle into meditation, to become concentrated. And so this name, hindrance, I mean, it is a translation. It's a translation of the Pali term nivarana. Uh, But this translation for us often makes us think or feel like hindrances are, you know, if it's a hindrance, it means I can't meditate when it's there. So there's a sense that we have that if I'm experiencing one of these energies, that it's a real problem and it has to be gotten rid of and that I can't meditate. So we tend to have an antagonistic relationship, or we can have an antagonistic relationship with these mental energies. Yet the Buddha, while saying that they hinder our ability to get concentrated, at the same time said that they are perfectly valid, legitimate experiences with which to cultivate mindfulness. In his... um, Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, which we've been talking a little bit about. He, um, he mentioned these hindrances as an experience, as experiences that we can be mindful of. They're found in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So he described in this fourth foundation of mindfulness ways to be mindful of these difficult energies. So not only is it, it's, it's possible, he's saying it's possible to be mindful of sense desire, of ill will, of sloth and torpor, or sleepiness and dullness is another way to put that one, of restlessness and anxiety and of doubt. It's possible to be mindful of these energies. And not only is it possible, it's extremely helpful. It's very valuable for us to learn how to be mindful of these states of mind. So these states of mind are usually experienced as unpleasant, as, or when, when we be, begin to become aware of them, we usually experience them as unpleasant, as, a, as problematic perhaps. We experience them as dukkha, as suffering. I talked about this word dukkha the other night, or the other day, I know sometime, I talked about this word dukkha. That sense of it being uh, kind of an unease of our lives being off-center or out of kilter. So, uh, an out of, 
balance kind of feeling. It, I mean, the word suffering tends to make us think of large suffering, but the term dukkha is much broader than that. And so these, these mental energies, these hindrances, are usually experienced as dukkha. They are a form of suffering for us. But again, the Buddha didn't, his whole exploration, his whole path was around exploring the suffering. He said he found a way to freedom from suffering, but it wasn't through somehow magically transcending that suffering. It was through meeting it, going through it, understanding it. And so, this is a recommendation with these hindrances. As a form of suffering, we meet them. We, learn, we, we understand them. We explore them with mindfulness in order to understand them. So this is the key that the Buddha offered around dukkha. Understand dukkha. This will lead you to freedom from dukkha. So being mindful of difficult experience, being mindful of dukkha, means meeting it, being with it, but not indulging in it. It's a kind of a, um, one of my teachers, Saida Upandita in Burma, described this kind of meeting experience as being a, a rubbing that we, you know, rub our experience as if we were polishing a bowl with a soft cloth. And this image for me has been really kind of helpful as a way to think about exploring, being with our experience. It's not a trying to forcefully pick it apart. It's, it's a opening our hearts to and meeting our experience. So it's an observing and ex- the experience directly, this understanding of dukkha the Buddha suggested. Observing this unease, this dissatisfaction, all of the struggles that we have, observing it directly, not thinking about it, not analyzing it, but being willing to be with it. Almost as if you'd be willing to be with a small child who is in pain. You know, that kind of being with. So this understanding that comes with the mindfulness, with this willing to be with, this understanding begins to allow these difficult energies to dissipate. It's kind of a magic thing in a way. It's the understanding that frees us. This is what the, uh, the third noble truth is about. The possibility for freedom from suffering comes from the letting go of the holding on to wanting things to be other than they are. This being the source of all of our dukkha. So this understanding, the understanding that comes from being with allows us to begin. The, 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 it's not that we let go of these difficulties. It's that they begin to let go of themselves as they are met with this mindfulness. So I'd like to just offer you briefly the a paraphrased version of the instructions the Buddha offers for the hindrances in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. 
And just hearing these, I think, can be helpful. I'm not going to try to cover all of these in this talk. That would take several uh, evenings. <laughs> so, um, But I just like to put them out there. So he says, first of all, for all of these states, so uh, for sense desire, I'll just use one of them and then I'll restate the others so that you can kind of get a sense. So for sense desire, we recognize when sense desire is present and we recognize when sense desire is absent. That's an interesting one to think about. Noticing when these difficult energies are not present actually supports us. Begin to get familiar with the causes and conditions that lead to these hindrances, lead to sense desire coming into being. What are the situations that you get in that uh, uh, make sense desire come up? And then we can learn the conditions that help it, help that sense desire to not appear. So essentially, by, in effect, partly by seeing the conditions that make it appear, we learn conditions that support it, support sense desire not appearing. And this, this partly, too, is around understanding and exploring what are skillful qualities of mind, wholesome qualities of mind, that kind of counter sense desire. These same instructions are offered for ill will, noticing presence and absence of ill will, noticing what conditions allow it to arise, notice what conditions support it not arising. Likewise for sloth and torpor, likewise for restlessness and anxiety, and likewise for doubt. So he offered some very specific things for us to play with, to observe, to explore around these hindrances. So, given that I can't cover all of these this evening, what I'd like to primarily talk about is what it means to be present for, what it means to um, explore, investigate these states when they are present. So that's that first instruction. Recognize when the hindrance is present. So beginning to explore that side of it. The other piece that I'd like to, to bring in a little bit is what to do or how to work or some suggestions for how to work with these energies when they're kind of overwhelming because we can't always bring mindfulness to these difficult energies. It's kind of like, um, you know, we can think about these energies as having a certain level of momentum or a certain level of, of energy. And our mindfulness in meeting that, if that, if our mindfulness doesn't, have the same level of energy or cultivation or development as that hindrance does. It's like the hindrance is a tsunami and our um, mindfulness is just this little trickling stream. And so we can get swamped by these energies. So we need to become aware, we need to be be, um, cognizant of times when mindfulness is not necessarily the right approach for us and we need to do something else to take some action to uh, bring ourselves into some kind of balance around these energies. So the first, sense desire. So this is um, 
the desire to have pleasant sense experience at our five physical sense doors, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. So this is kind of that, this is the kind of, you know, wish to have, be surrounded by pleasant experience. Generally, this desire is kind of fueled by um, a belief. I think I talked about this a few days ago. It's fueled by a belief that having this sense pleasure is how we can be happy. You know, that, that being able to surround ourselves by pleasant sense experience is the road to happiness. For each of these hindrances, the Buddha offers an analogy, um, and I'll give you the analogy with each of these, um, each, with each one that I talk about. And the, the analogy is, um, it's about a bowl of water. And this bowl of water, I guess they, they used to use bowls of water to reflect them, to, to reflect so that they could see themselves, you know, so that was kind of a form of a mirror that they uh, used. And so, you know, this bowl of water is there. And the analogy about sense desire is that that water has been laced with dye, colorful, swirling colors in the water. And so, because of the swirling colors in the water, we become entranced by the colors, and we can't see our reflection. So we can't see clearly because we're entranced by the colors. So this is kind of the way the sense desire functions for us. We become entranced with this notion that these pleasant experiences are what is going to make us happy. And we can't really see clearly. We can't really see how that entrancement is actually keeping us on a cycle of just wanting to get something, wanting to get the next thing, wanting, wanting, wanting. So this sense desire keeps us from being present, keeps us from being in the present moment. Because we are kind of pulled out of the here and now in order to figure out how we're going to get that next moment of sense pleasure, even if it's only a few seconds away. So we feel like life is going to be better if we get that thing. But what's happening is that we're actually giving up peacefulness here and now for the possibility of a few moments of sense pleasure sometime in the future. So, you know, it's not really the desire, it's not the, the, the sense pleasure itself that's the issue here. It's, it's the desire that is the problem. It's the desire that's fueling us out of the present moment to get the next thing. You know, living our lives, we are going to have a stream of experiences, and some of them are going to be pleasant, some of them are going to be unpleasant, and some of them are going to be neutral. So that flow is just going to happen. But we don't just let that flow happen. We try to stop it at the pleasant ones. Try to get rid of the unpleasant ones. So it's not the pleasant experiences that's an issue here. It's this 
desire to create a world in which there is only pleasant experience. Or the belief, actually. It's the belief that that is the way to happiness. So exploring this energy, what does it mean to explore sense-desire? Well, you know, being um, focused on our sense experience, it's kind of our, our mind with sense-desire is turned outwards to the world. We are focused on things out there, trying to figure out how to maneuver the world to have the pleasant experience we'd like. The, the uh, helpful instruction around sense-desire is to see if you can let go of the attention outwards to the uh, things that we want. And instead, it's like turning the attention 180 degrees around and look at the experience of what it feels like to want something. So this is bringing mindfulness to this experience of sense-desire itself. We don't resist it, we don't try to stop it, and we don't indulge in it. So this movement of turning towards the experience of sense-desire is a way of not indulging it, because in the turning towards, we're not acting on it. We're not trying to fulfill that desire, we're simply trying to watch. What is, what is this desire? This is this understanding that the Buddha talks about. Desire, the sense desire, is a, um, an energy that pulls us into dukkha. It doesn't, it doesn't inherently seem like it would pull us into dukkha, but I think I mentioned some of the ways it does the other day. You know, that if, if we desire something and we're trying to get it and we don't get it, there's the dukkha right there. If we, if we desire something and we get it, it doesn't seem like there should be dukkha there, but then we may be feeling like we have to protect it and defend it, and we get anxious and afraid that it's going to go. We've gotten something we like finally, and how can I keep it? How can I hold on to it? So there can be a feeling of anxiety around it. Or it could get lost, it could get broken, it could get stolen. No longer ours. So we're not indulging in that sense desire. We're not trying to fulfill it. We're just simply trying to observe it, turning towards that feeling. Now, sense desire, actually most of these hindrances come with some some kinds of thinking often. You know, oh, this is what I need. This is how I have to do this. This is very important. Um, This is what's going to make me happy. You know, those kinds of thoughts are going, you know, and and scheming. Our thoughts are scheming how how to make this sense desire come to us, this this sense pleasure come to us. So there's two pieces to this exploration. One is seeing if you can let go of the thoughts and not engage in the thinking process around sense-desire and instead turn towards the feeling in the body. There's probably some kind of feeling in the body when, especially when sense-desire is strong. For me, it feels like I'm being pulled like a magnet towards something. That's one way it feels. Or another way it feels, if I'm really, if I'm like, you know, moving towards something, it can kind of feel like, I'll give you an image, Um, you know, when swimmers come to the end of the lap of the pool and they kind of coil themselves up into, into, uh, 
you know, the the ball in order to shoot themselves out into the pool. That energy of coiling my, being coiling up and shooting out in a direction. Sometimes that's the way uh, sense desire feels. Eagerness. That's a kind of the feeling of eagerness. Oh yeah, that. That's going to make me happy. And it kind of has that feeling of propelling in a direction. So getting a sense of what it feels like. What does this energy of desire feel like? We can play with um, simple desires, simple sense desires, as a, as a way to explore this. You know, um, just this, the, the energies are the same, whether it's a small desire or a large desire. And there's a lot of learning that we can uh, come to by exploring even very simple sense desires. You know, one day I was driving to the meditation center to teach a class and I got stopped at a red light and I was sitting there at the red light and there was a Starbucks you know, just across the uh, intersection. Seeing the Starbucks, the mind went, oh, latte, that would be nice. And so I, could, I felt the desire spring up at that moment. And having done a lot of this practice, you know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to pay attention. Just going to pay attention to this feeling. You know, not going to act on it, just going to watch it. And um, what I saw was that once the light turned green, I managed to, you know, turn past the Starbucks and not turn into the driveway, past the Starbucks. As soon as Starbucks was out of my field of vision, that desire was gone. You know, so this is a learning, you know. It's like it was, it was in my mind as the thing that would make me feel really good while it was in my field of vision, and then it was just forgotten when I managed to drive past the Starbucks. So exploring in your own experience these little wantings, you know, seeing if you can not act on them necessarily, and play with, exploring, what can you learn about sense desire? What can you learn about your own mind? In that case, there was a learning that, you know, some, some of the sense desires, not all of them, but some of them are fueled based on just simply having something in proximity, you know, it's just once it's out of proximity, it's like out of sight, out of mind, right? So sometimes we do have some challenge with sense desire. It can it can get strong, and we need some discernment to recognize whether we are actually able to be mindful of sense desire or whether we're indulging it. You know, sometimes if there's um, uh, you know, sense desire can appear as a fantasy in our minds. And we can think, oh yeah, I'll just be mindful of this fantasy. And we let the fantasy run. And it's like, what we're really doing is indulging the fantasy. As opposed to really being mindful of the feelings of what's going on. So we need some discernment to know when we're allowing and observing and when we're indulging. So beginning to recognize when we get lost... You know, a key for that one would probably be, you know, if you're if you're indulging the fantasy, you're probably getting lost in the fantasy and are not terribly mindful of it. And so that's a key, is noticing when mindfulness, when we're not really able to be mindful, when we try to bring our attention to sense desire, and we find we keep getting lost in the sense desire, then it may be time to take some other kind of action to learn kind of a skillful ignoring, you know, okay, just let that 
be to the side. I'm not going to put my attention there. I'm going to actively put my attention somewhere else for a while. I'm going to put my attention in my feet. So it's kind of ignoring. It's learning how to ignore something, but without an aversion, without a, a, a hatred. Just like, nope, I'm just going to put that aside and pay attention to something else. So the second of these difficult energies, ill will, is um, the sense of disliking things. And it is rooted in a belief that our happiness depends on getting rid of unpleasant experience or getting ourselves away from unpleasant experience. It can have that impact too. It can either be that we actively try to push something away or that we say, I can't be here, I need to get out of here. So it pulls us away from the present by um, you know, feeling like we have to get rid of things in the present moment. Again, it's that not being willing to be with what's actually here because we think our happiness depends on changing what is actually here. If only I could get rid of this thing, this state of mind, if only I could get rid of this experience, this knee pain, this pain in the back, if only I could get rid of this experience, then I could meditate. As we begin to explore these energies, the energy of ill will, what we actually start to see is it's the wanting to get rid of, actually, that is creating the difficulty, creating the agitation. So these, being able to settle down to meditate doesn't de- de- uh, re- depend on getting rid of that energy. It's just a reorientation. Again, it's kind of, it's very similar to, to sense desire in a way. That very often with ill will, we're focused outward on the thing that we don't like, trying to fix it, change it, get rid of it, control it, or figure out how to get ourselves out of the way. And the movement is to turn towards the feeling of the ill will itself. So we you know, take our attention out of the thing that is initiating or triggering the dislike, the, the, the ill will, and turn towards the feeling of ill will itself. Very similar to the way I talked about working with sense desire. Let's see if you can let go of the thoughts that are um, fueling the sense desire, I mean the ill will, the, uh, the thoughts of I can't stand this, this has got to go, this is a problem, all of those thoughts tend to reinforce the ill will. So turn attention away from that, see if you can let go of the thoughts and turn the attention to the body. What does it feel like in the body? Ill will does not feel pleasant at all. It's a, it's a, a difficult experience to learn how to be present for. But as we start to uh, explore it, we actually see um, that it's, it's easier to be with the feeling of the ill will than it is to be in this, caught in this state of trapped by the ill will, trapped by the belief that acting on that ill will is the only way to happiness. So turning, attending to the body, 
Now, I, I, I do want to say that um, what I'm talking about here, you know, not acting on the ill will and, um, you know, just turning to the experience, this we can do always in meditation. You know, it's, it's always helpful to, to refrain from acting on ill will in meditation. In our daily lives, we need to be, um, be careful about what we mean by that. Um, you know, sometimes we can have the sense of, um, you know, if I don't like something, you know, if there's a sense of not liking something, that means I should just sit there passively and not do anything about it. You know, it's like, that's not really the teaching. The teaching isn't about just being passively uh, a lump on the log while unpleasant things are coming at you. We can take action to get ourselves out of the way of difficult situations or to take care of, of situations that, are, that cre- are creating danger. I mean, for instance, you know, you see a child running out into the road. You know, you're not going to just sit there observing, you know, oh, fear is happening in the body, you know. You're going to run out and try to stop that child. It, it demands some action. Now, there may be some aversion happening, some ill will happening around the feeling of fear. But... The, the, the action, actually, we can act out of compassion there. So that I mean, the, the teaching on not acting out of ill will doesn't mean that we don't act when there's something that um, we see is difficult or wrong in the world. But what we do try to do is to act out of compassion rather than that ill will. It's possible to change something and to want to change something and not hate that thing. So I just wanted to kind of make that clear. So it's important also to be able to recognize with ill will because, at least in my own experience, sometimes the ill will experience can feel like the tsunami. You know, it's like we can get overwhelmed by ill will. Um, and it feels very difficult to be mindful of it. And again, I think that the um, uh, a skillful way to deal with this is very similar to the overwhelm I talked about with sense desire, when we can't really meet it with mindfulness. Can you allow that ill will to be there, but but not uh, directly meet it? I mean, sometimes what seems to happen is that when we directly try to meet a difficult energy of of ill will and there's many flavors of this anger frustration irritation annoyance rage um, lots of different flavors of ill will and sometimes those um, emotions can get very strong stronger than our ability to meet them with mindfulness and when um, that happens you know we try to bring mindfulness to those emotions and we just feel like we get sucked into the black hole of the, those emotions that's a clue that it's not time it's it's not so helpful to try to bring mindfulness to those emotions so again that kind of setting aside not now it's kind of how i work with that it's like okay i see you i see you anger but i'm going to you know you stay over there do your thing. I'm just going to put my attention in my feet. I'm going to do some walking, and I'm just going to pay attention to my feet. So learning, again, learning when you're in a state of overwhelm and beginning to learn skillful ways to redirect the attention. For uh, ill will, I really recommend that people find or learn to cultivate some kind of a... um, 
an experience that is outside of the main core of the body. Because, um, you know, if you try to use the breathing, you know, a lot of people say, well, I, I just try to come back to the breathing when I'm, you know, noticing the anger and it just, you know, I just get caught back in the anger. Well, a lot of the feelings associated with ill will happen in this area of the torso. And so if you're feeling a lot of anger and you're trying to pay attention to breathing in this part of the body, you're likely to kind of get the mixed up with the feelings of the ill will. And so I like to suggest that people cultivate something. Hearing is a good one for ill will. It takes you out of the physical body. And, uh, you know, you can just, unless it's something that the sound is what's creating the ill will, (laughs) which can happen. So hearing is good, or putting your attention in your hands or your feet, something grounding, you know, your buttocks touching the chair or cushion, something to um, allow you to stabilize while that experience, you just let that experience be in the background. Again, it's not a repression. It's not a, a pushing away. It's kind of a gentle, not now. The third of these is sloth and torpor, or sleepiness and dullness. This um, often comes with low energy. The mind and body are kind of in a low energy state. Um, That's the sleepiness kind of side of things, when the body is low energy. And then when the mind is low energy, it can just feel dull and foggy or thick, kind of like pea soup. So the mind feels unclear. We typically get kind of agitated around this state because we think, especially if we're trying to meditate, you know, if we're trying, if we're trying, if we're going to sleep, it's not a problem. But if we're sitting in the meditation hall and trying to meditate and we feel sleepy or dull, it feels like a problem. You know, how many of you have had the thought, I can't meditate because I'm too sleepy? What I'd like to propose is that if you have that thought, if you can have that thought, I'm too sleepy to meditate, then you have enough mindfulness to at least explore what it means to be mindful of sleepiness. So I'm going to give you an analogy that I found really helpful. I think I talked about uh, the analogy of the mindfulness being kind of like a mirror, you know, that it reflects what it experiences, and it doesn't care what it's reflecting. You know, so it can reflect beautiful things or ugly things, and the quality of the mirror is not changed by what it's reflecting. And now think about that mirror after you've been in the shower and it's all steamed up with fog. So you're, you know, you're standing there. Try if you're trying to use that mirror to see your reflection. It's not going to work very well, you know, because it's covered with steam. But you know, just knowing how mirrors work, that that mirror is doing its job perfectly. It is reflecting every drop of water perfectly. It's not doing what you want it to do, but it's doing its job. And so what I'd like to propose is that when the mind is dull or foggy or sleepy, At times there can actually be enough energy to just recognize sleepiness is happening. Dullness is happening. 
if you're trying to use that dull or sleepy mind to pay attention to the breath with, with um, you know, all the different sensations of the breath, or you have some agenda about what you need to be paying attention to, it's going to be frustrating. But the mindfulness can perfectly reflect that dullness, that sleepiness, that fogginess. One thing that I've seen on my own in exploring this is that when I play with it this way, you know, don't resist, not resisting the sleepiness. It's not a problem if you're sleepy or dull when you're meditating. It's actually not a problem. It's only a problem because you think it's a problem. So it's your idea that makes it a problem. When I turn my attention to the feeling of sleepiness without resistance, when I don't resist it, well, when I do resist it, if I'm resisting it, trying to do something else, the feeling of sleepiness is really unpleasant. I think most of you have experienced that, you know, that, that sleepiness feels really unpleasant when you're trying to meditate and to pay attention to something. But if you don't resist the sleepiness and you just allow yourself to observe the feeling of sleepiness, it's really pleasant. It feels really good. You know, this is a little carrot for you, you know, as a, as a way to, you know, hopefully get you interested in exploring sleepiness because it can feel really pleasant. You know, just observing the feeling of sleepiness come over you. The body gets really relaxed. The brain goes into this lovely, you know, vibratory state. And I explored this on one retreat where it really became clear to me this was possible. And I watched this, all these feelings descend through the body and this mind going into this state. And I got to the place watching this that I could see right before the body dropped. I could know right before I was going to fall over. And in, in seeing that, I could just like straighten up my body a little bit, open my eyes, let a little bit of energy come in, and then just close my eyes and let the whole thing happen over again. It was like the best, you know, Disneyland ride. It was so much fun to play with sleepiness. Now, there are times when the mind is too sleepy, you know, when um, there's more sleepiness. I mean, it takes that kind of, you know, some kind of balance between the mindfulness and the sleepiness, you know. But it's possible more often than you think to be mindful of sleepiness. But if you try it, if you explore it, and I encourage you to explore it, and you find that you just end up fall, you know, like this for 10 minutes, well then, you know, when you come up into awareness again, stand up, open your eyes, perhaps at the next walking period do some faster walking, bring some energy into the body. So these are some ways to work with that energy when it's a little too much for our mindfulness. There's another side to, um, to this difficult energy, and that's the thick mind. And we can also be mindful of this, of the torpor, the dullness, the pea soup mind. It's possible to, to just know that pea soup. And again, um, you know, it... it uh, Without resistance, it's, it's, it's possible to see that state. One of the um, antidotes to that state is kind of counterintuitive. You know, if you find that that state is just so thick that, you know, you're just continually just gone in that fog. 
One of the antidotes to that is to see if you can bring a little bit more precision to how you're paying attention. So try to notice the sensations at the beginning of the in-breath. See if you can know the very first sensations at the beginning of the in-breath. And see what happens. It's counterintuitive, but um, it works because making effort like that generates some energy. So it can, it can, you know, just doing that can begin to clear up that pea soupy mind. The next of these energies is restlessness and anxiety. And this has both a physical and a mental component, kind of like the sloth and torpor has a physical, the sleepiness and the mental, the pea soup mind. So restlessness in the body has the quality of, you know, it's so unpleasant. You know, it feels like there's jumping beans under your skin or your nerves feel itchy. It's just, ugh, it's really unpleasant. The agitated mind has the quality of feeling like it can't land anywhere. It just feels like it, you know, just it touches something and then goes someplace else and someplace else and someplace else. And it just feels like it's scattered. It doesn't feel like it can collect and attend to anything. Oh, I've been forgetting to tell you the analogies. I'll tell you the analogy for this one. <laughs> the um, the analogy for this one is you've got the bowl of water and you're trying to you know, look at yourself in the bowl of water, but that there's wind blowing, and so the surface of the water is rippled by wind. So there's that agitation on the surface. So with physical restlessness, that jumping bean kind of quality, um, the thing that I found most helpful in working with that experience is to um, see if you can let the attention get really big. It's kind of like, see if you can allow that feeling of the jumpy bean body to get as big as the room. It's kind of like sometimes we feel like we uh, are trying to be aware. If we're trying to be mindful of something like that, it's like we, we try to be aware in the body. And it's almost like a pressure cooker, that it, it tightens down the experience and makes it even more agitated. But it, you just kind of have the sensor, the, um, you know, what would happen if I just allow that feeling of restlessness to get as big as it wants to? It's like it gives it more space so that it doesn't have quite so much the agitated feeling. It's kind of like just let your mind get really big and allow that feeling to get as big as it wants to. With restlessness in the mind, with the mental kind of restlessness, it's often helpful to kind of just check in or, or see if there's something, some kind of an emotion happening. Because often the mind gets restless, it's spinning in thought. This restlessness of mind often has a lot of spinning thoughts to it. Um, there's often an emotion underneath the spinning thoughts. So if you can just check in, what else is going on here? Is there some emotion present? You may find worry, anxiety, regret, remorse, something going on. See if you can 
in that kind of a situation, the the movement, again, it's a lot about letting go of thoughts. See if you can let go of the thoughts that are associated with the, the spinning mind and ground your attention in the body, how that emotion manifests in the body. And we'll talk about this more tomorrow, tomorrow morning. How to pay attention to emotions through our bodily experience. So you feel remorse. How does that remorse impact your body? You feel fear. How does that fear impact your body? Tightness, constriction in the throat, feeling of jumpiness in the stomach. So ground your attention in the body. As we ground our attention in the body, we, uh, we're, we're closer to the actual experience and we're not allowing the attention to be in the thoughts which tend to fuel the whole cycle around the experience. So again, you know, there are times when the restlessness can get too strong. So some helpful things when you notice that if you're trying to bring mindfulness to this difficult state and you get swamped, it just, it just feels like you get lost in the restlessness, then it's probably helpful to take some other action. Open your eyes, go for a walk, go out in nature. Those kinds of things are really helpful when the, the mind and body are really restless. The last of the five hindrances is doubt. And this, the doubt that's being referred to here is doubt around the practice doubt around our ability to practice, doubt in the teachings, doubt in the teachers. So it's around, it's not, it's not doubt in, you know, oh, can I, you know, go skydiving? You know, do I have enough courage to go skydiving? That's not the kind of doubt, you know, we're talking about here. It's doubt around the practice. The description of doubt is that it is a, a wavering, you know, that the mind kind of wavers back and forth. There's an analogy about um, somebody who's in doubt. is like somebody who's lost in a desert. You take a few steps this way. Think, oh, that can't be right. And you go back and take a few steps that way. And, oh, that can't be right. So it's kind of that wavering, that vacillation. That's the quality of doubt. The mind can't decide what to do. Or it uh, flip-flops, you know. I should do that. No, no, I should do that. No, I should do that. Or you find it spinning in logical arguments about the practice. About, you know, oh, this is, I should be doing this kind of practice. I shouldn't be doing this mindfulness practice. I should be doing, uh, you know, some kind of dancing practice instead. Sometimes these thoughts can sound very wise. You know, they have a rationality to them. So the key with doubt is really learning to recognize when doubt is happening. Because doubt is a great deceiver. Doubt can completely trick us into thinking we are completely rational and wise in our reflections. So for me, one of the big clues that doubt is happening is that I'm having a lot of thoughts about the practice, about my ability to practice, 
about the kind of practice I should be doing at this moment. Oh, metta right now. No, no. Mindfulness of breathing. Oh, no. Open awareness. If I'm thinking about what I should be doing, that's a form of doubt. And just as a a little piece right there, if that's the kind of doubt you're having, just pick one. It doesn't really matter. Just pick one. And doubts about, you know, the teachings themselves. You know, the the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago. You know, how can his, what he learned, possibly apply to the 21st century? So if you're having thoughts like that, if you can just recognize, oh, this is doubt, that is two-thirds of the difficulty, two-thirds of the battle around doubt is beginning to, is recognizing, oh, doubt is happening. Often there are some emotions that are underneath doubt as well. Feelings of vulnerability, feelings of insecurity, a fear of failure. That was a big one for me. Feeling of of failure that, you know, fear that if I don't do it right, I'm going to be a failure. And so what's the, how can I do it right? There was a lot of doubt in my mind about doing it right. That was motivated out of this fear of failure. Fear of the unknown can lead to doubt. So just recognizing doubt is happening is huge. And then we can begin to see what's underneath. What else is happening here? What emotion is going on? What's fueling this doubt? In one uh, practice period at Spirit Rock, I was noticing one afternoon, I, I was caught in doubt for several hours, I think. And finally, after several hours, I finally came to the surface and it's like, oh, doubt. Doubt is happening. What do I do with this? I was really caught by it. I thought I had to get rid of the doubt in order to practice. That was, you know, my mind state. Finally, it was like, oh, doubt's what's happening. Maybe I should practice with doubt. Immediately, I recognized that there was a feeling underneath it. And in this case, it was a feeling of grief because I felt like I'd lost my way. I felt like I you know, had lost my faith in the practice, my confidence in the practice, and there was this feeling of grief. Having recognized, one, that doubt was happening, that I could be aware of it, and kind of the emotion underneath it, it passed within 15 minutes. Just the, the willingness to meet it. I had been stuck in it for hours. And when I finally came up to be able to watch it, it dissipated very quickly. So that, that um, is the biggest key with doubt, is just learning to recognize it. So, you know, we do have this feeling that um, these hindrances somehow are in the way of our practice. You know, as I said, in that case of doubt, you know, it's like, I have to get rid of this doubt in order to continue. We'll have that feeling at times. But the wanting to get rid of is just another hindrance. It's just the hindrance of ill will. And the Buddha has told us we can be mindful of these hindrances. You know, he's given us instructions on how to be aware of these hindrances. He didn't say, you know, push them away. He didn't use that bear down, grit your teeth, get rid of kind of instruction. He said, notice it, observe it. When these energies, these hindrances are seen with mindfulness, 
when we can bring that quality of mindful attention to our hindrances, they are not in the way of our practice. They are our practice. They become the path. They become the unfolding of our path. They become the learning that is the learning that is up in this moment. We can use suffering as a guide. When we're suffering, there's something that needs to be understood. When these hindrances are present, there's something to understand. The understanding of that is what leads to freedom. Really, truly, it is not, these hindrances are not in the way. I have had deep uh, recognition of impermanence, of not-self, through the exploration of hindrances. Just a real recognition. This thought that's arising in my mind, this self-hatred that's arising in my mind is a construct. It's empty. Quite amazing to, to, to be able to witness our deep patterns, our deep difficult patterns with mindfulness and begin to see how they can release and fall apart. So these hindrances are going to be with us for a long time. The Buddha talked about the path of awakening unfolding in stages. He talked about there being four stages to awakening. At each stage of awakening, there's more freedom, more releasing, more letting go. And um, some of the teachings kind of map these hindrances onto these stages. So at the first stage of awakening, it said that doubt goes away. It's not until the third stage of awakening that sense, desire, and ill will go away. And it's not until the fourth, the final stage of awakening, that restlessness, anxiety, and sloth and torpor go away. So, get used to them. Make friends with them. (laughs) And get interested in them. Really, the the interest, if 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 you can bring some interest to this exploration, you will have much, um, much to learn and much... Uh, benefit. So that's my wish for you, is that you can bring an interest to this exploration of these difficult states. So let's sit for a moment. I'm going to drop a poem into your sitting. It's a poem some of you may have heard several times by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. 
even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you for your attention. We have about 25 minutes for a walking practice and we'll come back for the chanting at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.